When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, in the first of a two-part episode, we'll hear from Brigadier General Robin Olds. Olds is a triple-ace fighter pilot who shot down 17 enemy aircraft during World War II in Vietnam. By the time he retired, Olds had won the Air Force Cross, the Distinguished Service Medal, the French Croix de Guerre, and the British Distinguished Flying Cross. Well, my name is Robin Olds. I was a fighter pilot 30 years or a little more. And I retired in 1973 as a brigadier general, baby general. Basically, going through pilot training, a youngster is singled out to either go on a fighter pilot route or transport of bombers, okay? I've often asked the training command people, how do you tell? And for as many questions as you ask, there are as many answers. But it's the same thing for any of you. If you get in a car and you're sitting in the right front, uh, front seat on the right side and somebody's driving down the street, you get a pretty darn good idea right away of what they're like, of how good they are, of the degree of situational awareness, of driving ability, of attitude, if you really pay attention. So I think that's how the training command uh, instructors pick the kids that are going to go the fighter route or the bomber transport route. Now, there's nothing wrong with those guys. I mean, they're perfectly capable and well-trained, but they just lack a certain spark. There was an old newspaper, the Air Force, I think they still put it out, I don't know anymore, but they, they would have every week pictures of five or six colonels who were getting a new assignment. And I would cover the names and show this to my wife and say, show me the fighter pilots. 
invariably, just looking at the pictures, she would pick out the fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. Now, something in the eyes, something in the set of the jaw, something in the contour of the face, I don't know. But it's different. So, fighter squadron in peacetime, well, the manning varies. You can have, let's say, 32 pilots. That includes a commander and the ops officer and the flight commander, you know, maybe 28, 32 pilots. And they vary, as I told you. But the lowest man on the totem pole is better than the highest man on the other totem pole. <laughs> You're asking me about an open cockpit, about fighting in an open cockpit, about flying those old birds. Obviously, I can only answer in generalities. I've been plenty cold. That P-38 in World War II was the coldest thing you ever wanted to fly in. Had very little heat. So that, that's uncomfortable. Uh, the War I pilots, according to the pictures my dad had, flew with heavy fleece-lined jackets and boots. And, you know, they were the cold where they had fleece-lined helmets, you know, and the goggles. Um, it was uncomfortable, but it was manageable, you know. And everything is relative. They didn't know that they should have parachutes. They didn't. They probably wanted them, but they probably didn't know what it was. They didn't know that maybe they ought to have armor plating, because hell, the airplane couldn't have carried it, you know. So everything was new, except the sensation of flying, and that has not changed over the years. The first time you are in the control, at the control, by yourself, and depart Mother Earth, you're changed forever. Forever. You are not one of the Earth as long as you're airborne. It's a sensation that is very, very difficult to describe unless you've done it. Freedom, joy, movement, beauty, aloneness. I could describe for you a night flight etched in my memory, coming back across country from the east to west at night in a jet, the stars seemingly touchable through your canopy, little lights gleaming down below on a velvet carpet like jewels thrown with a, with a light on them. Way off to the right, a line of thunderstorms with lightning flashing across the clouds and into the ground, just there for your, for your benefit. And you're proceeding over the countryside and the towns become very scattered. You cross the, the Colorado is gleaming. You can, see the, you can see the river, the desert. Then the lights of Los Angeles beckoning you through the Banning Pass. Then you land, taxi in, you're met by crew chief. After an experience like that, who doesn't climb out of the airplane and sort of touch the side of the airplane? The gesture of thanks. As I told you, we were in P-38s, went overseas, lots of training. Then the rumor went around we were going to convert to P-51s. Some of the guys were very unhappy because they loved the 38. I was ecstatic because I wanted to fly this, this different airplane. They landed, 
great tight traffic pattern. We were all there watching. Taxied in, spun around, opened the canopy, off went the helmets, blonde hair, wafts, women flying. Well, I were jumping up and down and said, let me fly it, let me fly it, boss. Wait till they put fuel in it. Yes, sir, yes, sir. I said, okay, now. He said, now, my checkout. He said, look out for the torque, meaning say, we didn't have to bother with torque in the P-38, but in the 51, that big engine and the propeller created torque, which you had to compensate for with rudder. He said, look out for the torque. So I went to the bird, jumped in, crew chief showed me how to start it, and away I went for a very short, you know, couple of landings. I had a total flying time of four hours and 15 minutes in a P-51, and I was shooting in a Falk Wolf 190. That was my checkout. Maybe you've noticed when you, when you sit with your cars in idle, if you rev the engine, you, you can feel the, the frame of the car reacting if, if you're sensitive to it. It's because the rotating parts of the car establish torque. Now, torque is like when you were a child, you played with a gyroscope, and it would stand on end because of that moving wheel. It would react to being moved. Well, the torque in a single-engine aircraft is very much the same. The engine parts and the propeller are going roundy, roundy, round. The aircraft body wants to react in the opposite way, or in that way, when anyway. So when we took off in a 51, you had to crank in full right rudder trim to counteract the torque. And as you went down the runway and got faster and faster, the tail became more and more effective, and you could come off on the trim. And those of us who loved a 51, and I, I must say flew it well, always you flew with your hand on the trim tab because every change in speed changed the torque and the rudder had to compensate for it. And you had a needle ball, and if you didn't compensate, you could see that ball slip off to one side, which meant you were going like this because the airplane was reacting to the power of the rotating parts of the propeller and the engine. So you compensated with the rudder trim. Getting into the cockpit, let's say, of a P-38 was a very difficult task, only done by young men or an old man with an a, a, a forklift. When you had to use a dinghy, wear a dinghy, backpack, for me, the 38 cockpit was very cramped. Our young didn't notice it at the time. It was cold, but the engines, you asked about engine noises, those engines were smooth. They had a turbo supercharger, and they, they purred. No crackle pop. You climbed into a P-51, the cockpit was far more comfortable. Heating system, excellent. You started that engine, the prop would turn over if you did it properly, maybe three or four times, and all of a sudden, bang, crackle, pop, cough, boom, cloud of smoke, and it would 
settled into idle, but very noisily, because those 12 stacks were right in front of you on either side of the of the uh, cowling, and uh, n nothing to interfere with the uh, with the noise of the exhaust. It was a wonderful sound. Have you heard it? Probably the how unique a P fifty one sounds at an air show. It still sends shivers into my tummy to hear it. I love the airplane. The cockpit was was comfortable. It was um, everything was in reach. You know, I tell you a funny story. I came back one. Once I had to land short in Belgium because well, something had happened and I lost all my hydraulics. So I fixed it. Ha, huh, I fixed it. I took off after replenishing the hydraulics and fixing the leak, but the gear handle wouldn't move, so I had to fly back to England with the gear down. My engineering officer met me and uh, yeah, I told him my problem. He said, well, we'll fix that, but what was your hydraulic pressure? My hydraulic pressure? He said, yeah, you, 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 you know. I said, well, no, I didn't have any. He said, what did the gauge say? I said, gauge? <laughs> Where is it? He said, it's that one down between. He said, oh, is that what that is? <laughs> oh, boy. The second um, fight I was ever in. We had a new group commander named Hub Zemke, famous man, wonderful man, great leader. Took the place of our old group commander who was shot down. He was leading us on what we call a sweep. That meant he had three squadrons of, uh, I think, four flights each. That's uh, 24 airplanes per squadron. Spread out, line abreast, on a sweep into Germany. Well, I was leading D flight on the left, and I moved my flight way out to the left, as far as I thought I could get away with it without being shouted at. All of a sudden, there were all these specks. He didn't say anything. You know, you know they're mine, ours, you know, shh. So I kind of eased over, and pretty soon I was in full pursuit, full power, and I could see my number three and number four engines were detonating because the Allison engine in the P-38 was not all that good. And I could see the black smoke coming out, so I knew that they would never catch me. As we closed, I saw that this was a huge gaggle of 109s. There were three Vs, or Vicks we call them, large, with a lot of scattered all around, high and above, around. So I lined up on poor tail end Charlie on the highest Vic. Meantime, I had screamed to my wingman, drop tanks. So we dropped our external tanks. So I'm closing on poor old tail end Charlie, and I was about to squeeze the trigger, and both engines quit in my P-38. <laughs> I had forgot to switch tanks. Well, I was in good position. I was within range, so I fired anyway. And uh, I got him with both engines dead. So I dove away and got the engines restarted and then went back and joined the fight. And my wingman had stuck with me, B.E. Hollister. 
we were headed for the uh, the Baltic. I could see it in the distance. And I came across the the main bulk of these huge massive airplanes just disappeared. Everybody by himself, bang, bang, bang. There were three headed down that to the down to the left. We closed on them. BE took the two. And the most prettiest piece of shooting I ever saw. He went boom, 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 got both. I followed this one. I managed to get him. Then there was nobody around. Not even BE. I don't know where he went. And I looked down, and there was a um, P-51 way down below me chasing a 109 with another 109 on his tail. So without thinking, I rolled that 38 over and dove. You do not do that, it was a P-38. It hits compressibility. We didn't know what it was in those days. But the shock wave from the nose and the engine section blanked out my elevators. So you're headed straight down with a useless control stick. You got nothing to control, they're in a vacuum back there. And you're headed straight down. And you're going too fast to bail out. So it's a matter of luck. Are you going to be able to pull out when you hit the thicker air or not? Well, to make a horrifying couple of seconds shorter, I managed to pull out just barely, just barely missed the ground. And in pulling out, I pulled so many Gs, I popped the canopy of my P-38, which frightened me. You never heard so much noise. And I said, I'm going home. I've had it. This is enough. So I headed for England, which is about 350, 400 miles away. And I looked back over my shoulder to see if that canopy had done any damage to my airplane. And there was a 109 shooting at me. And, of course, I reacted immediately and threw it into a violent left bank. Did a high-speed stall, thinking... It's not fair, damn it, can't you see? All I'd want to do is go home, leave me alone. <laughs> well, the poor guy overshot, because I almost stopped, and uh, went right out in front of me, and I rolled the wings level, he squeezed the trigger, down he went. So that was three that day. A damn good 109 pilot could whip a mediocre 51 pilot. One of the things I've heard people say is, well, you outnumbered them. Sure but never in the same piece of sky. Never, always. Whenever, every engagement I've ever had, except I think one, they outnumbered us in that piece of sky. Now, we may have had 900 fighters, but they were off somewhere else. <laughs> Airplanes, 109, 51, FACWOLF 190s, it depended on the pilot. A uh, good, experienced pilot with a handful. You knew it. Uh, some of their pilots were not experienced. They were just kids. It was it was sad at the end of the war. But it depended upon experience and talent. The airplanes were very similar, very closely similar. I think the biggest disparity in aircraft uh, performance was one, the long nose uh, FW Focke-Wulf 190, and the British um, Typhoon, Typhoon, yeah. I got to fly that, and I was quite impressed. 
Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I was stationed in Germany and uh, would take my dinner at the old officers club most evenings. Family was in London. And I got to know the German bartender. I'll call him Hans. And one night I said, Hans, what did you do during the war? He said, Was Messerschmitt pilot. I said, Oh, <laughs> you ever get shot down? Oh, yeah. I said, no. When? He said, what's in uh, February? February 13, hmm, 1945. I said, Hans, were you in a squadron that was proceeding along a frontal loft and headed for the bombers, and you got hit by a bunch of red-tailed Mustangs? Oh, yeah. And I just thought, this can't be true. I said, did you pop a panel in your chute when you bailed out? Yeah. I thought, my God. I said, you want to see a picture of yourself? I shot him down and had gun camera film to prove it. And I came around with with the guns off, switches off, and took a picture of him hanging in his chute. Isn't that something? Well, he didn't wave. That made me sad. He... But he said, you come around at me, I think you're going to shoot me. I said, no, I'm just angry because you didn't wave at me. (laughs) We had encountered the German jets frequently with very little success because of their speed. Um, I think Hitler was an absolute idiot in misusing them, but that's... Another, that's, that's another subject. So we knew, all of us knew that the jets now existed. Um, I was very happily commanding my squadron at the end of the war in Europe. And we sat around, we, I, uh, we were given P-47s because we were slated to go to the Pacific if needed. We had a wonderful summer. Doing nothing but flying, raising hell, Chasing the girls. 
And suddenly a wire arrived at the base. The Major Olds will report to the commanding general at the nearest port of debar aerial debarkation immediately. I thought, boy, somebody really needs old Robin, you know. Well, I arrived <laughs> the aerial port of debarkation, which happened to be Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. And I walked into this office, and there was a lieutenant behind the counter. And I showed him a copy of this telegram. I said, here I am. He said, who are you? I said, hmm. He said, those aren't proper orders. I'm getting a little irate now. I said, well, they got me here. What are you going to do? What, what, what does the general want me to do? He said, we don't have a general. So now I'm really getting incensed. And a lieutenant colonel walked out from behind a petition. What's going on? He started chewing on me. Well, we didn't exactly shout, but I said, this is what brought me here. He said, those aren't proper orders. I said, well, call the general. Call whoever originated this message. Well, we can't do that. I said, okay, what are you going to do with me? He said, you got 45 days of R&R, &R, rest and recuperation coming, or 40 days, something like that. I said, oh, what's that? He told me. I said, where can I go? He said, anywhere you like. I said, send me to California. That's as far from this damn place as I can think of. So back I went to California where I trained in 38s. I had an aunt and uncle who lived in, uh, here in Van Nuys. And I had a stepmother whom I adored who lived in a cottage at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So as a young major, I was set up, I'll tell you, it was wonderful. Parties on the one hand, and quiet on the other, and uh, bought an old Buick. And I was having a wonderful time. At a party, I ran into a, a Colonel K.O. Desert, who'd been a Air a West Point graduate, lacrosse player, who, so I knew, I knew him uh, as an underclassman. I introduced myself, and he said, oh, yes. And I told him my sad story. Well, he happened to be in command of the replacement depot at Santa Ana. He said, give me a copy of that wire, which I had in my pocket. And I said, yes, sir. Where can I get hold of you? I told him. He called the next day, and I could hear the chuckle in his voice. He said, uh, are you ready? And I said, yes, sir. He said, this was the end of September. He said, on the 1st of September, you were supposed to report it to West Point to work as an assistant football coach for Colonel Red Blake, who was a football coach. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. He said, get down here. We'll get, cut you some proper orders. And so I drove down, said goodbye, and drove down, and I'm on my way. I got to West Point in three days found a place, to, temporary place to live in the missing officer's quarters, right next to their old, old uh, officer's mess. 
So the next morning I was walking with 50 yards between the building to get have some breakfast. And this colonel came out of the building. Uh, he was tall. He was skinny. He was immaculate. <laughs> His hat looked like it had a stove lid in it. Um, so I saluted very smartly, good morning, sir, and kept walking. And this voice screamed, you man, halt. I hadn't been spoken to like that since I was a plebe at West Point. And I turned around and stood sort of at half attention because I wasn't too happy with this situation. And he said, what's your name? Are you stationed here? Who do you work for? Well, I thought, one, two, three. Uh, sir, I just, uh, yes, I'm stationed here. Well, that's the most disreputable, disgraceful uniform I have ever seen, said he, looking at me from head to toe and back. He said, that hat. Well, it's like, the, you know, that all of us wore our hats. It took 50 missions to get it to look like that. He said, that collar is frayed. Yes, sir. That necktie is non-regulation. Well, heck, I bought it on Bond Street. I liked it, you know. And he said, you got spots on your blouse? Those pants look like they've never been pressed. He was right. We didn't have tailors, dry-cleaning establishments. We washed our clothes in 100-octane gasoline. He said, in those skews, what are those things on your feet? Well, they were Wellingtons, and I'd bought those on Bond Street in London, and I was very proud of them. He said, you will report to me, and he told me his office. He was the base adjutant. At uh, 4 o'clock this afternoon, properly dressed. Yes, sir. So I spent the rest of the day buying new uniform. And, you know, I thought, you know, he's right. Here I am at West Point. This is the way they do things. Don't fight the system. And he was right on almost every count on my uniform, you know. So I reported in properly attired and then went to work for Colonel Red Blake as about the 18th assistant football coach, for which I was qualified like a mountain climber. I was not qualified to be a football coach. I'd been a football player, but coaching was not my bag. So mostly I did, I, I did flew scouting trips and recruited. Lots of good flying, lots of fun. But I was just wasting, you know, marking time. So at the end of football season, I went into this old colonel's office, saluted Sir Martley, and said, Sir, I'm ready for my next assignment. And he looked at me as though I were crazy. He said, You're going to be here for four years. Yes, sir. I left the office and thinking to myself, like hell. So I got in my car, I drove to Washington went into the Pentagon and very luckily ran into a man I knew who was in personnel. We'd been in the same company together at West Point. He was an upperclassman. I said, Ham, I told him my story. I've got to get out of there. He said, uh, well, where do you want to go? And I said, for God's sake, send me back to Europe. Let me take over my squadron again or anything. He said, no, Robin, the uh, situation there is all... 
we don't know what we're doing yet. You know, we're trying to get people home. We're not sure if we're going to, we don't know what we're going to do. What else? I said, well, I've heard about that outfit out in California that's got that brand new jet, that P-80 thing. How about that? About 30 minutes later, I had orders. So I drove back to West Point. The next day, I very quietly cleared base. I waited till I knew in the evening that that colonel was not in his office. And I walked in, I placed one copy of my orders on the center of his desk. I got in my car, drove out the north gate, turned left, and sang all the way to California. So I joined the old, at then it was called the 412th, became the first fighter group. I reported into a wonderful man named Tex Hill, a legendary figure. Tex was AVG, later commanded a group there in the China Burma, ace character, real character, but now he's a full colonel. And he was the group commander. So I went into his office, knocked sharply, went in, saluted, said, Major Olds reporting for duty, sir. And he looked at me, wonderful Texas drawl. He looked at me, he said, how in the hell do you get in this outfit? And I said, sir, I use pull. I didn't tell him it was a lieutenant colonel. He said, God almighty, he said, I got so damn many majors running around this place. I stumble over them getting to work every day. Go find yourself something to do. So I went down the hall, and here was a sign that said group operations. And I walked in, there's a lieutenant colonel sitting there, and I said, morning, colonel. Colonel Hill sent me down to work for you. <laughs> so I hung around that office all that day with nothing to do, part of the next day, and I finally said to the secretary, I said, Phyllis, hold all my calls. I'm going to go fly. Of course, nobody knew I was there. Nobody called me. What the hell? But So I went down to one of the squadron, drew equipment, got my own stuff that I had in a bag, and walked out on the flight line. And there was a sergeant buttoning up a P-80. And that's the first jet I'd ever been anywhere close to. I said, she ready? Sorry, she ready to go? Yes, sir, Major. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I want you to make sure I um, follow the starting procedure properly. Because in those days, if you messed it up, you'd get what we call a hot start, which meant at least tailpipe change, but mostly engine change. So he climbed up the ladder. I strapped in. He showed me how to get it started properly. I thanked him. He got off the ladder, pulled the ladder, and I... Taxed it off and took off. That was my checkout in jets. <laughs> How did jets change combat? Now, when you say combat, and I think combat, they're two different things. Airplane versus airplane, pilot versus pilot. It's not time versus time, really, until later, which I'll talk about later. Jets changed it in that, one, you were restricted in range compared to your P-51 in War II. Things happen at greater range, faster. Closure rates, turn radius larger. 
your maneuvering envelope much bigger. Enemy, same. Same for him, same for you. So eyesight helped a lot because of the, the greater ranges of, of um, interception, of detection, of looking out for the guy. The faster closure rates made it critical. Armament, uh, same. These are the early days. Fear is something that probably starts at any age, but it starts with a scare, a fright, and grows, and goes deep inside you. For a given circumstance, or for any circumstances, or for whatever, you name it, uh, you're afraid of something, because it's grown in you. A pilot who is afraid, fearful, is not very good to himself, or to the unit. You uh, quietly, if you recognize it, and a good commander should, quietly get rid of the person. Now you can be scared, startled, but you get over it. But fear, no. If something else happens to you in combat, You as a person change mentally. You don't realize it, but it's going on constantly. The longer you're there, I could say the deeper the change. There was a time back in War II when my, one of my two roommates, Wally Wallace, used to moan and cry in his sleep call out his wife's name. And I was keeping a journal at the time. I confess writing in it that I considered him a coward. He was frightened, scared. Now, mind you, I was very young then. And, uh, well, of course, I still am. But, uh, but I, went, I was going on to tell you about how a man changes under prolonged combat. And the best illustration I can give you is uh, over there in Thailand. I'd, when my younger pilots finished their 100 missions, to the extent that I could do it for all of them, I would have them in the office, you know, in the one-on-one, -on -one, thank them for their contribution, Tell them how wonderful it was to know them, to work with them, assure them that we'd be seeing each other over the years in the future. And then I'd say, but I have some advice for you. The first thing that's going to happen to you when you get home is you're going to fight with your wife. The second thing is you're going to go to a welcome home party and your best friend from college is going to come up to you and you're going to want to kill him. You're going to arrive at your base, your new base, and you're going to make an ass of yourself. Why? 
You don't realize how much you have changed in the time you've been here, six months, nine months, whatever it took. Your wife is going to be the first one that sees this. You are not the same one she kissed goodbye. You've changed. She'll sense it right away. And it's going to lead to a, a bitter situation. Between, she wants to find out who you are. You're going to go to that party, and this friend is going to come up and say, what are you doing fighting that stupid war? Then you're going to go to your base. Friday night, you're going to go to the club, beer call. You're looking for someone you can talk to, someone with whom you can share. Be careful. Because the guy you pick might be some major who's been there for three or four years. And every morning when he shaves, he looks in the mirror and says, Dear God, please don't send me. He's going to hate your guts. So be careful. Well, I got home, and about a year later, we had our first big reunion of those that had been there when I was there. And I can't tell you how many of the youngsters came up to me and said, you know, boss, I didn't really listen to all that stuff you told me when, when I left, but you know what happened just that way? I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> that was Brigadier General Robin Olds. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear the rest of his story as he describes his experiences in Vietnam. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director. And Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.